Welcome to Failing Forward. We're super excited to have three guests with us today. So Brittany, can you please introduce yourself for the audience? Sure. Thanks, Emily. I'm delighted to be here. My name is Brittany Dernberger, and I lead our Systems Level Impact Initiative for Care USA. Hey, Pari, over to you. Thanks, Emily. Uh, my name is Pari Chaudhary. I am a Senior Technical Advisor with CARE's Health Equity and Rights team. Hey, and Catherine, how about you? Hi, Catherine Nitselsky, Director of Government Relations for CARE USA. And this is a question we start absolutely everyone with. Why is it important for us to talk about failure? CARE's Fast and Fair campaign was you know, really the first of its kind, uh, especially for our organization. And it was in response to a global pandemic that was also the first of its kind. So, you know, really brought around a novel set of not just challenges, but also programming opportunities, uh, measurement. And so we wanted today to really elevate some of our successes and shortcomings from that whole campaign, because we believe that it is really going to help us leverage that opportunistic investment to potentially increase our the effectiveness of our programming moving forward, not just in response to pandemics, but in response to elevating marginalized populations and developing innovation and really driving change uh, through local platforms that we might not have really leveraged previously. And I'd say that's doubly true on the advocacy side. You know, we saw a pandemic have great impact, obviously, on the lives and economies of people in the United States, but it also, I think, really changed sort of the legislative dynamics around pandemic preparedness, around global health. So we want to make sure that we understand where we went wrong in some of our advocacy and sort of what the impacts of this pandemic will be on future global health policy. You've mentioned fast and fair a couple of times. Talk to us a little bit about what that was and what the context we were operating in. In November uh, 2020, Tara launched what we call the Fast and Fair campaign. And the intention behind it was essentially for us to be able to push for fairness, equity, and efficiency in global COVID-19 vaccination efforts. Um, and what that meant was that, you know, CARE has been working in the development and humanitarian spaces for several decades, and we wanted to be able to leverage that expertise and those relationships to be able to support and strengthen health systems around the world to deliver vaccine to populations that they perhaps had not previously thought about delivering care to, especially in places that were especially affected by poverty, fragility, violence, and so on. And so uh, we adopted a model where, you know, we wanted to make sure that the vaccines reached absolutely everyone, because unless that did, then nobody was really safe. And so we we're working to capitalize our levels of influence that we have, not just in local communities, but also with ministries of health and international governments uh, to be able to essentially build and maintain support for comprehensive vaccine funding through advocacy, which Catherine will talk more about, but also through our actual programming. So we worked, um, we drove systems level change through health system strengthening, through protection of frontline health workers, mobilization of communities and health education and vaccine awareness, and just facilitating the delivery and um, myth busting and misconceptions around the COVID-19 vaccine. From the advocacy perspective, you know, this was a moment where we were seeing massive supplemental uh, pieces of legislation for supplemental appropriations to fund the response to COVID-19, both domestically and internationally. And from an advocacy perspective, what we were trying to do was influence that funding 
to meet the needs that we were seeing on the ground. And there was such a direct line from a programming perspective, from our evidence that showed what was really needed to get from tarmac to arm. And that was sort of a different a set of, of evidence that then other organizations, including the World Health Organization, were putting out. That was really the context where we were we were able to say to Congress and to the administration, look at the real evidence, look at the holistic approach that we are taking to vaccine equity and all of the needs that are encompassed by that and how we can fund those efforts from a sort of global, U.S. global leadership perspective. There are a lot of things that went well in that example. And I know that this podcast is always a little tricky because it's failing forward. So we're going to focus a lot of our time on some of the things that went wrong. So start there. What are some things that didn't go the way we wanted them to and why? The major thing that didn't go well is that we didn't get all the money that we needed. So we originally were able to get some $19 billion of COVID money, you know, in some of the original supplemental packages that Congress passed, which was really amazing and so impactful. But then when we um, put on this whole campaign, when we went sort of door to door in Congress, door to door in the administration, we weren't able to get more money that our evidence showed was needed. I think one example of this maybe is uh, in sort of on the the sequences of things that went wrong was that we were able to really convince USAID and the State Department and sort of all the folks at the technical levels who were really seeing the impact on the ground, why all this money was needed. But we didn't pay as close attention to some of the more politically influential folks in the administration. We didn't have an advocacy strategy for OMB, who was actually putting together the request to Congress. And we'd never really advocated towards OMB before. You know, when we advocate towards Congress, we have folks in districts who are able to write letters to their members. When we advocate towards USAID, we have really personal relationships where we bring our program folks and show them the work that they do, and they're really invested in it. But we didn't have a plan for OMB. And so um, we sort of failed to understand the impact that they would have. And what, what how that ended up looking in, in practice was that USAID had requested to OMB that there be uh, $19 billion in their request, um, which matched what our evidence showed was needed. And OMB said, okay, great. Now the politically feasible amount of money is $10 billion. And so that's what we'll start with. And so we saw that basically slashed in half, right? Because we didn't have that OMB strategy. So I think that's that's one of the things that comes to mind when we think about uh, things that didn't go well. From a programming perspective, I think one of our shortcomings was just an inadequate planning for human resources. And I say this to say that CARE, you know, stepped up its COVID game I would say pretty significantly and pretty quickly. So it's not that the organization wasn't doing enough. It's that we weren't perhaps stopgapping what would have been regular business and what staff were already kind of responding to in their regular portfolio. So from a purely human resource-based standpoint, we had not just CareUSA staff, but country office staff around the world who were now actively working to respond to a pandemic that they we didn't really have evidence-based approaches around to start with. Second, they were adapting programming that was ongoing but had been designed for a very different context and was now being implemented in a, what was an emergency response situation. And third, they were also having to carry out a global fast and fair campaign. There wasn't necessarily you know, surge support in staff. And in fact, we were also, I would say, even more limited than we would have been normally because field travel was limited. 
uh, folks were not able to sort of have the direct engagement with communities that they previously did and so on. It definitely made things, I think, additionally complex when we had that to deal with. I do think of Fast and Fair, it actually is a success story, but I often wonder if we had had the money that Catherine was talking about and the human resources that we actually needed, what would we have been able to do? And then I think another thing closely related to that was because CARE was so keen to respond and so well-placed to respond, there were actually multiple bodies of work happening across the organization simultaneously. And while I would say towards the end of the pandemic, those bodies of work did a better job of coming together and having a more streamlined response, in the beginning, there was, I would say, much more um, siloed pathways in terms of a response to this pandemic. And we probably would have benefited from coming together as a group much sooner than we did. And then to add to that, we had some evaluation and measurement challenges because of what Catherine and Pari just described around the very organic way this that this unfolded. One failure of this that we can learn from is not having a clear evaluation framework from the beginning with really clear outcomes across that complex local to global system we were trying to achieve of what we were actually counting as impact and what we were trying to measure. And as part of that, we did not have some good process indicators for different scenarios along the way. So as Catherine described, we had this big push to get a specific amount of funding from the U.S. government we didn't have a way to, to pivot when, when it looked like that was not going to happen and still be able to measure our impact. And then you add on what Pari was just describing around the fact that this was the middle of a global pandemic. Teams were overstretched. Everyone was doing this on top of their regular day job, which was also more challenging because we were all also living through a pandemic. It just made it a really difficult scenario to try and accurately measure our comprehensive impact. One other piece of this is that we really leaned into U.S. leadership. And I think, you know, under the Trump administration, we had said over and over again, in order, you know, in a donor environment where many countries are stepping backwards, the United States needs to step forward in order for other countries, other donor countries to continue to, to provide foreign assistance in this sort of economic context. And we really leaned into this message and we leaned into the Biden administration too. We said, we need to provide COVID assistance in order for other donor countries to step up. But other donor countries didn't really step up. So there was a huge gap. And that I actually think will have repercussions on U.S. leadership in the future. They'll say, look, we stepped up. We gave billions and billions of dollars in times of need for a COVID response. And nobody joined us. So what does that mean for, we hope our care partners and their peers will do in other in other capitals, how we're asking other donor countries to step up and meet the moment? From the care fundraising perspective, we were hoping to solicit certain dollar amounts from a number of donors and, that, and we just didn't get there. And so I think, again, it's like, how do you try and measure progress and impact when you don't hit what the original goal was? And we just had not set ourselves up to do that as well as we could have. To some extent, the irony of all of this is that evidence base that Catherine was talking about that really shaped what we were advocating for identified a lot of these challenges globally and nationally. You have to resource the humans to do this. You can't just drop a bunch of money and not include more people and more systems. You have to acknowledge that the people and systems you're hoping to operate through are in the middle of a pandemic too, and you have to adjust your thinking for that. You have to assume that there's maybe not as much money floating around the system to catch any extra that you didn't donate as 
you hoped there would be. Um, so those are all points that really well noted here. They weren't just care problems, right? Those were global problems that we were kind of all operating in that context. One of the things I also know we've talked a lot about is this idea of how do we make sure that when money gets allocated, it gets implemented, that something makes it all the way through the change to the last mile. And that was one of our big advocacy points and, and programming points as this conversation happened. What did we see working or not working the way we wanted it to in that context? So one piece of this, I think, is a challenge when you are using any government dollars, and that's that it takes a long time to program and implement those dollars. So when we advocate for emergency funding, there is pressure from Congress, understandably so, to spend that money very quickly because it's an emergency. And that's why they did it outside of regular order. But we see that it just takes a long time. And when you push the U.S. government to spend money really, really quickly, it doesn't necessarily have the impact it would have if you had an appropriate amount of time to program it sort of responsibly like we normally do. And so I think one lesson for this, and this is a lesson we hope Congress will understand and really take to heart, is that we can't really live in these supplemental funding bubbles because it creates uh, funding cliffs. And we are currently at a, a place in U.S. government funding where we're at a very low amount of base foreign assistance. And then when there's a crisis, we quickly program billions of dollars and then we drop off that and then we wait to the next crisis and we quickly program billions of dollars. And that's not great for you know making sure that our money is spent with the best ROI possible. And so it's on us as advocates to teach Congress and to remind Congress that we need to be putting all this money in the base because we absolutely will have crises. We see this time and time again. We don't need to know what the crisis is in order to ensure that the funding is there to catch it. So what next? What do we learn from this? How do we move past it now? We've developed essentially a set of five recommendations that we would consider for our future campaigns, recognizing that despite the challenges that we're sharing today, that we did have significant successes in several countries where we might not have actually expected to even see some of that, but also acknowledging that we probably could have done better in some spaces. And so one of the things that is might seem like an obvious one, but we wanted to elevate regardless, is that CARE needs to improve our approaches to scenario planning and be more responsive to rapidly changing circumstances. And I say that as like the representative by the health team on this call, we do have a public health and emergencies response plan, right? We do have resources and infrastructure allocated to that. But I do think that the pandemic really elevated that we are, even within uh, emergency response, used to dealing with a certain type of emergency. And so we need to be better at planning for what ifs, worst case scenarios where like there isn't enough money, there isn't, there aren't enough people and so on. And essentially having a strategy that is durable enough and adaptable enough that it can respond to a wide range of potential outcomes. Another thing that we elevated was that we need to do a more intentional job of continuously linking the on the ground programming to local advocacy campaigns with also global influence, because that is uh, something that CARE has a competitive advantage about in terms of its positioning. And so we could play 
a large role in that uh, from a global perspective. From a program perspective, the fact that we have multiple longstanding partnerships, not just with national governments, but also with peer organizations and youth-led groups, and essentially groups that represent under-resourced and marginalized groups normally. And so we should be better at elevating their voices and creating platforms for them to represent power and hold um, decision-making influence within these kinds of spaces. I think I would summarize the two biggest one as money and outcomes. So we know that we need to build money for this kind of impact evaluation into these large-scale initiatives from the beginning, which as Pari said, sounds simple and straightforward, um, but is an ongoing challenge to make sure that we're setting ourselves up with the right resources from the beginning to be documenting milestones along the way and ultimately be able to measure our impact. And then as I mentioned earlier, being clear on the outcome, part of what was so challenging about this evaluation was just getting consensus on how we're measuring success. Is it, you know, things like masks being distributed and public awareness campaigns around hand washing, all of which are examples of programming care was doing during the pandemic. Is it specific to advocacy? Is it specific to the supplemental bill that Catherine was mentioning getting passed? Like, how are we measuring what we're doing and what what counts as success? Because that's really important to be able to measure the impact. You need to know what it is you're looking at. And then the added complexity of care was working in 34 countries doing fast and fair on the ground. And so not only the the US advocacy Catherine was mentioning, we were also doing global advocacy with United Nations related platforms, and then the programming happening in these 34 countries. And so retroactively trying to fit all of those puzzle pieces together from a measurement perspective was a really big endeavor. And I think one of the clear takeaways going forward is how can we have that really clear outcome from the beginning that we all agree on? How do we have pivot or process indicators built in that are checkpoints of like, if this is not happening, how are we doing that scenario planning? And then building in that money for the evaluation from the beginning and having a dedicated staff person assigned to it. This is a small thing, but ended up being significant was that during the course of Fast and Fair, we had a lot of fabulous interns who were involved in the campaign. But then there were certain files that were like saved on an intern's laptop that didn't quite get transferred, you know, to the main care uh, knowledge platforms. And so there's just some logistics. And again, we can look back now and say, it was a global pandemic. Everyone was doing the best they could. But I think there's some infrastructure pieces we can set up that are really going to help us learn from some of these mistakes or things that didn't go as well during Fast and Fair. It's not that CARE didn't think about evaluation. We did. We just maybe landed on the wrong conclusion. And I say that simply because there was an an indicator developed that was supposed to be a global measurement indicator, right, for all Fast and Fair campaigns. The thing is, it was not the right indicator because it didn't match any of the Fast and Fair programming that was happening on the ground. And so unlike the way CARE usually operates when we have the luxury of time where there's a lot of scoping, there's a lot of discovery involved, there's information gathering from stakeholders around these global measurement things, For Fast and Fair, there wasn't time to do that. We had this discrepancy between what country offices had been able to do in terms of their programming and were also resourced to do for their programming and what we had asked them to track. So we had to spend, as an organization, far more resources later on than we would have otherwise on being able to evaluate the campaign effectively. That is how this evaluation was born is like, well, we know that we were doing a lot, 
But as Pari mentioned, the indicator that we had been planning to track that in, it looked as if we'd had very little impact. And so that that is what led us on the discovery process that, that led to uh, the ultimate impact evaluation. The two things that I think are lessons really going forward. One is that when there's an emergency that captures the national attention, you have to move quickly because opportunities for funding won't last forever. So we got a huge amount of funding at the beginning and we sort of thought there'd be another bite at the apple and there's often not another bite at the apple. So you put everything in at the beginning before, you know, almost anything these days will get polarized and will get politicized. So you just want to run in when, when the whole nation is sort of on board. And then the other piece is to think proactively about what one piece of an emergency you might want to maintain advocacy on after the heat of that emergency. So for care, that was frontline health workers. And we've really seen that the issue of frontline healthcare workers captured the imagination of policymakers. They understood because in part of our advocacy that the human workforce is so critical to our to protecting our global health investments. And that's true with COVID, but it's true with all sorts of other things too. And so we sort of identified that towards the beginning and we will continue to pull that thread far after everybody has, you know, moved on from, from the COVID pandemic. So I think that's, that's a real lesson that, that we should be taking with us. And I think that one's not unique to care, right? Like we, I've interacted with several donors over the last two years who essentially, similar to care, put all of their eggs in the proverbial COVID basket initially. And then in 2023 are drastically shifting their strategies because they realize that that's not the be all and end all of what public health and development is. And so I think care did, this is one of the wins that care had is like, we really were able to elevate a population that development has been working with for like a hundred years already, frontline health workers, and finally bring them into the light that they've been deserving of this whole time. And we're not the only ones doing that, of course, right? But it's simply to say that I love that you elevated that point, Catherine, because I think that that is so critical as to say, it's easy in the moment to be like, this is everything that needs to happen but you also need to have the long-term strategic direction to be able to say okay four or five years from now ten years from now what are we leveraging this moment in order to be able to do for them so and also what are we learning in this moment that shifts our strategy over the next five ten years yeah. right it is that it, it runs in both directions and I do want to just highlight because I think it's so critical that you all brought up really important things about you know what we should be doing differently and and how we should move past it some of those are in contradiction with each other the idea of it's going to take a long time you have to plan you have to really think about what is the right indicator and do the mapping and well you got to get in there right away because that opportunity is going to be short and so we have to learn to sit in that tension you know we think about the data space I was doing a lot of talking to media at the time about why there were not global numbers about where vaccines were ending up. It wasn't just our data systems. Global data systems around this kind of work aren't strong because they have not received the kind of investment that other types of data systems have. There is tension here between do we move fast? Do we do it the way we've always done it? When we move fast, it's going to be imperfect. How do we adjust after? And so thinking about those those tensions of what our lessons learned when sometimes they contradict each other and how do we hold both of those spaces because they really are mostly all true at the same time, which makes this work hard. If you could do it differently, knowing what you know now, you could go back to the beginning and do it all differently, understanding that the context would still be a global pandemic where global health systems were not set up to do any of the things we were asking them to do. What would you change? 
I'll say from advocacy, I think I would change two things. One, I would have brought the voices of, I mean, they were busy, obviously, dealing with a pandemic, but I would have done my best to bring the voices of our frontline health workers directly to policymakers. I think we were all moving so quickly that we didn't take the time to really center the voices of the people who were most impacted. And I think maybe that could have been impactful or you know made change. The other thing I think I would have done is work, and this is sort of an inside the beltway wonky thing, but one of the, the, con- the long-term consequences of COVID was there was remote voting. And so members were home and only leadership was in Washington. A lasting impact has been that power has become more and more centralized in party leadership in Washington. Whereas previously, a committee chair would have basically all of the control over their issue set. Now that's with the Speaker of the House or the Senate leadership. And so while we had you know really banked on our relationships with the chairs of the foreign affairs committees and sort of the appropriations committees that work on foreign assistance, um, you know, they were advocating for COVID supplemental money. And then in this very small room when no one else was there uh, in the middle of the night, essentially, party leadership said, that's not going to work. That's not going to work. Cut, cut, cut. And that was true, honestly, on both sides of the aisle. So I think a lesson for us is that we now have to really double down and invest on party leadership in Washington to ensure that they support these issues as well. From the programming perspective, I think there are hundreds of things that I would have done differently. I'll elevate only a few. The first is I would have probably suggested to CARE that we second several members of the health team just towards COVID-19. And as a protection of those resources, we were, as we should be, granting a lot of decision-making power to country offices who were part of the Fast and Fair campaign, who were looking to us for guidance that we didn't have. Every context around COVID-19 granted was different, but there were similar existing challenges across all 34 countries that people were dealing with. And if we had had the capacity to be able to have people who were just not on the ground, but able to do the more global look at like, okay, how can we better capacitate people to respond to this particular challenge or this issue or whatever it is, I think we would have been um, in a better situation. The second is that a lot of our forecasting that CARE was doing around our programming was was with this approach that regardless of how tough things are now, or regardless of how much is on everybody's plate, at some point we're going to, we're going to reach a point where the U.S. government is going to give us a significant amount of money and everyone's going to be golden. And that never came. And so when you take people from an environment where they are, as Brittany was saying, overstretched and under-resourced, while also not exactly knowing how to do what they're attempting to do, while also being leaders in the space and still accomplishing impact, it it just felt like an unsustainable way of working for this period of time. I would have advised our organization to do a lot more contingency planning around what if the now is the all that it is and um, how do we sort of make that last and make meaningful change for the communities where we are working. And I wouldn't say we didn't do that. I think we actually did, but we probably could have done it to a larger extent. So with all of that in mind, what's one action you'd recommend to other people, either people at CARE or other people who work in similar spaces that you do based on what we've learned 
What do we need to do differently? What's next? One action that I would recommend to CARE as an organization that deeply cares about impact measurement and learning, consensus and agreement on the right metrics for a particular type of programming. And that includes things that would allow for adjustment. So creating essentially an evaluation structure and an impact metric that is both specific enough to cater to what you're actually trying to get at while also being broad enough to uh, target multiple country contexts. And that might sound like impossible, but we do it all the time. We do it for our gender programming. We do it for health programming. So it it's definitely an approach that we have previously levied. It can be challenging, but it, and it requires a few different people to be at the right tables. But uh, it is worth the initial investment at the beginning as evidenced by Fast and Fair, because it ends up costing you more if you don't engage in that process, um, despite how it might seem like it is the harder thing to do at the time. And I would just really echo what Pari said, be clear on the outcome. And as Emily pointed out, that is a tension because as Catherine so aptly said, like politically, we've got to move quickly. But if we can take that time as hard as it will be in that initial moment of crisis to say like, this is where we're headed. This is the outcome of how we're measuring success. Um, it will make our life so much easier on the back end. And one thing that I think that will help with is also knowing when to say we've lost. I think we did it better than others maybe in this space, but it was still really hard was to actually look ourselves in the mirror and say, this money isn't coming. Like we've pushed and we've pushed and we've missed the moment. It's time to move on because I think that we did spend some time and some resources when probably we could have said it's time to switch to another vehicle. It's time to switch to something else. There's something wrapped up in both of those comments of to really look and say, time to move on. This is as good as it gets. Time to try something new. There's also something there about this tension between moving fast and taking the deliberate time and putting the investment in to get to something that's going to work over a longer haul. How do we think about using the time and the energy more effectively or to get to those answers more quickly? The world had a deadline to try to vaccinate billions of people and globally we missed it. In that context, it's hard to say, well, if you'd just given us two more years to work out what our framework was, if you'd just given us more time to think through our strategy. Sure, but COVID was dictating that timeline. How do we balance those things? So the interesting thing is that, of course, we needed more money. That's a given. We've established that. But to be frank, I actually think that from a care perspective, if we had just had more communication, we would have actually been in a much better situation than we were. And I don't mean externally. I mean, between the people within the organization that were all doing this. Because frankly, like I was involved in the design of the Fast and Fair campaign from the health side, right? I didn't actually find out or learn about all of the advocacy efforts that had gone into the campaign until like nine months later when we were doing more of like the, oh, like what, what should we have done differently? I do agree that when you are in a moment, you have to capitalize on it. If there's a social movement, a pandemic, whatever it is, that is the moment that is the active one. But the one beauty of an emergency situation is that it's not like a development context in that the people with the money do not expect you to have a full-blown strategy for how you're going to evaluate your impact. And so you actually do have more time for that conversation to happen while you're immediately soliciting funds. So I think that there, of course, there's a tension, but there's an opportunity that does not exist in normal circumstances as well. So what we should have been doing at CARE 
is leveraging the moment from the advocacy perspective and preparing our country offices for programming. So the two arms, but then the two arms should have been like very much talking to each other and saying, okay, here's what we are thinking in terms of programming. Here's the funding that we're expecting to get. How do we make this into a beautifully packaged sandwich that is going to taste really good? And um, you're going to tell your, your grandchildren about where there are challenges. I think there are also opportunities and we we leveraged some and I think we missed others and the communication would have been the key piece for me. I totally agree with what Kari said. And I think that, you know, even what you were saying earlier about having the opportunity to succumb some people to only work on this issue, you know, the administration had a COVID task force. It made it really easy for us as advocates to engage directly with them because they were sort of running the interagency process. I think CARE could have had a COVID task force, right? And you have someone from programming and someone from advocacy and someone from marketing and someone from evaluation and someone from fundraising, right? And that could have really, um, I think, helped with communication. I came across this phrase last week that now is like my mantra, which is understand deeply, explain simply. And that has been a real professional lesson learned for me working on this fast and fair evaluation, because I think some of the challenges that we experienced during the actual campaign, we also experienced in the process of trying to evaluate the CARES impact during the campaign. When we did a third party external assessment to say like, okay, this was our internal analysis, but let's have an external third party review everything, repeat some of our analysis, tell us what they think. Our influence was not as robust as we initially thought because of what Catherine and Kari already shared around that advocacy all the way to implementation. So even though there were some policies passed at national and global levels, those didn't actually trickle down, so to speak, to, to local communities. And so we had to revise the, the original estimate impact number. I think as a researcher, it's very tempting to be like, it's so nuanced and it's this complicated story. And like, let me walk you through all the details. But the reality is that decision makers, both internally and externally, just need the bottom line. And they need to understand like those one or two top level points. Understand deeply explain simply is my new thing, because I think that has been something that I've really taken away from this process. And it was very complicated, of course, for all the reasons Pari and Catherine just described. But how do we like funnel all of that and synthesize it into a short, compelling point for people who need it? There was this real conversation about what were we going to say and, and that sort of zeroing in on frontline health workers. And I remember writing in a report that got published the sentence, vaccines are useless if humans don't get vaccinated. And that being incredibly controversial and being something that I got a lot of pushback about and a lot of, oh, we can't say that. But that was the level of directness and simplicity we needed to actually cut through, right? You can spend all the money you want in the world on these little bottles of something. And if they never make it into a human being, none of that investment was valuable. But communicating that simply provoked a lot of conversation about, is that the right thing to say? Are people going to not like that? But there's so much more complexity behind the systems that we're talking about. Generally on the program and data side of the house, we're kind of trained not to do that. We're trained to do the opposite. Is there anything you want to say that I haven't given you a chance to talk about yet? Despite the, the failures that we've shared today or the lessons that we've learned, I think one of the big things that came through from both advocacy, evaluation and programming perspectives was that CARE is able to do what it does because we have longstanding, deep existing relationships and 
trust built within communities that we're working with, even when there isn't a pandemic. We look at the 21 million that Brittany referenced, and frankly, the only reason we got there is because we had all of these programs that had already existed in these spaces for so long that they were able to respond to a pandemic much quicker than several other organizations were. Like I think of our programming in Myanmar, where there was literally a coup that was stopping international aid from coming in, despite the fact that it was pandemic. But because we had had a 10-year ongoing health programming there, they managed to pivot within a matter of weeks and respond to COVID and have significant impact there. I think of South Sudan, which is, to your point, Emily, had to return vaccine doses because they could not figure out how to administer them to folks, able to leverage the CARES presence to be able to do that stuff. Unless CARE is strong in our programming, even on a regular basis, and is advocating for changes across communities, is has appropriate funding to be able to do things, we won't be as effective when it comes to situations like this. That was a huge piece of our programs and how our country office was truly just amazing kinds of innovation. They took CARES flagship approaches that have existed for 50 years and did something that had never been done with those approaches before. And there's something to be said about that, especially as like the HQ of an organization, we have to be cognizant that our role should be to better facilitate that kind of innovation and adaptation. I couldn't agree more. And I would just say, I think that that kind of innovation and adaptation and nimbleness is the best case we can make for foreign assistance because a relatively small dollar amount can have tremendous impact because, and and I should say consistent funding, right? Consistent funding of these programs and communities allows um, us to be able to spend actually fewer taxpayer dollars in an emergency and to be able to have serious impact in communities that the U.S. government can't necessarily reach. We were preparing one of our country office folks from the MENA region, from our office in Jordan, to testify to Congress in the middle of the pandemic. And the hearing was on the pandemic and its impact in the Middle East. And the hearing had sort of gone off the rails and had become very political. And there were a lot of talking points running around. And the conversation was centering on whether we should take the time to put American flags on vials of our vaccines. I just remember that she looks at this member of Congress and she says, you know, this is from my perspective as just a, a woman living here in Jordan, not as a care employee, but we know that Pfizer and Moderna are American, right? Like we understand. And there are lines around the block when we hear that it's going to be Pfizer or Moderna one day. And there are no lines when we hear it's going to be one of the other vaccines. And that's the kind of vaccine diplomacy that matters. It doesn't matter if there's an American flag on it. That to me was really impactful and just reminds me of how these small investments, if we have the groundwork laid, can really pay dividends. Innovation and nimbleness that Pari and Catherine described extended to how we approached the impact measurement of this. There was no blueprint of how to measure local to global systems. And this is the first time to our knowledge as an organization that we've attempted to quantify the systems level change we made across these local to global systems. So it was just an exciting way to think about how we triangulate and bring together all these different pieces of data from country case studies from the 34 countries, secondary analysis that we did ourselves, the vaccine data, as well as the external assessment that we had commissioned. Historically, the way evaluations of this kind might be approached is like you hire a consultant, you have them do it. 
and then you get the report and you're like, okay, great. I think this was a really exciting opportunity to build our own internal muscle of how we might approach this kind of evaluation and to collaborate with the health team, with the advocacy team, with other key partners um, internally and externally. A part of our analysis included interviews with partners of care throughout our advocacy and high-level COVID officials, which was factored into how we quantified our impact. So those are all very innovative approaches that I have not seen us do before for evaluations of this kind. And so to me, that's like a really exciting learning opportunity that came out of this. The goal we were shooting at was getting billions of adults in the world vaccinated. And that's nothing the world has ever even tried to pull off before. While we didn't get there, we got farther than we've ever gotten. And the only ways we were able to do that were by building on systems that were already there, by people who really took the initiative to say, how could we do this differently? How could we pivot? How could we find something? Because this goal matters to us. And so there is this piece to build on, even though we didn't get as far as we wanted to. There's this idea of progress was possible in a context where it would have been very easy to say, never mind, that's impossible. We're not even going to try. Thank you all for your honesty about the things that didn't go well. But just a reminder that this is a pretty major global goal, and it teaches us a lot about what we need to do next time. Because unfortunately, we all know there's going to be some version of a next time.